this week on Pointing the Way with Pastor Shad Smith. Welcome to Pointing the Way, a ministry of the Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. We pray you will find direction for living as we look into the Word of God today.
Now, God didn't have to seal his promise with an oath, but God did seal his promise with an oath so Abraham could have that little extra assurance in his life that he could trust God. So, so listen to verse 16. The Word of God says, For men verily swear or make an oath by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. You ever notice when a man makes a promise, sometimes he will seal that promise with an oath? And the way you take an oath, the oath is taken by swearing on something greater than yourself. I'll give you a perfect example. You go into a court of law, they ask you to place your hand on the Bible. You ever wonder why you place your hand on the Bible and not a copy of Reader's Digest? Because, ladies and gentlemen, you are swearing an oath on something greater than yourself. Uh, you're, you're giving this Bible as the basis for confidence in what you're about to say. And so the writer of Hebrews says when you take an oath like that and base it on something greater than yourself, uh, that puts an end to all strife. That, that cuts out the murmuring and wondering, are you really telling the truth? It's the end of any dispute. That's the guarantee that you're saved. I'm, I'm, I can be counted on to tell the truth. Now, that's how men swear an oath. They put their hand on something greater than themselves. But in Hebrews 6, the Bible tells us God gave us His promise and His oath. Now, listen to me. If you're a man going into a courtroom, you can swear on something greater than yourself. You can swear on the Bible. What if you're God needing to make an oath? What does God swear on? What's greater than God? What can God lay His hand on and swear to that is greater than God? There's nothing. So back in verse 13, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Since there was none greater that He could swear by, He swore by Himself. God put His own name as the guarantee of his promise. How do I know I can trust God's promises? Come in real close, class. Because they are, listen to me, God's promises. They're not Washington's promises. Washington doesn't do good keeping promises. You and me, we don't always do good keeping promises. How do you know you can trust God's promise? Because it is God's Promise. And all throughout the Bible, you find God's promises. And every single one of them can be guaranteed, they can be counted on, because they come from God Himself. Every promise. To take, for instance, the promise of Romans 10, 13. I love that promise of God. That promise that says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. That means if you call on the name of the Lord today, if you call on His name, it didn't say you might be saved or you could be saved. It says you shall be saved. There's a promise right there. But on top of that promise, God puts His oath. God puts His oath to that promise. He is guaranteed to say, I guarantee you, Romans 10, 13 is true. If you will call on my name, I will save you. God says that. And did you know the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56, there hath not failed one word of his good promise. Take me to somebody today that will show you any place in their life, any place where God has ever failed 
to keep a promise. You can test God on that. You can test God and see if His Word is true. You can test in this passage of Scripture. It talked about Abraham. Did God make a promise to Abraham? Sure. The Abrahamic covenant. God promised to give him a child, him and Sarah. Uh, did, did God give Abraham and Sarah in their old age a child? Yes. God kept that promise. God gave them Isaac. God told them, He said, I'll make your family a great nation. Did God make Abraham's family a great nation? Yes. It's still a nation. All the nations of this world that have passed and gone from the scene, that nation is still a great nation. It's the nation of Israel. Did God allow Abraham's family, that nation, to bless the whole earth? Well, of course Israel's blessed the whole earth. How has Israel blessed the whole earth? Well, first of all, Israel gave us the Word of God. And Israel gave us the Son of God. So in Abraham's seed, the whole earth has been blessed. Did God keep His promise and oath to Abraham? Absolutely. In the case, now look with me at verse 17. Now it begins talking about me and you. Wherein God, verse 17, willing more abundantly to show, watch this, unto the heirs of promise, that's us, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. The Bible says here that when God made this promise to us, the heirs of promise concerning our salvation, he confirmed his salvation promise with an oath. God has put his name down on the line as the guarantee that he will do exactly what he says he will do in the matter of salvation. Now, God didn't have to confirm the promise. Uh, he didn't have to put an oath on the promise. God promises good without the oath. But you understand, he put the oath there just to let you and me know that we can have absolute assurance that we've been saved. Notice in verse 17 again, God confirmed His promise by an oath to show us, look here, to show us the immutability of His counsel. Two times in this passage of Scripture that word immutable is used. Do you know what immutable means? Immutable means unchanging. Unchanging. It means God does not change. Can I get a witness? God does not change. Doesn't that bless your heart to know that the same God we're reading about right here is the same God that you're saved, that's living in your heart, the same God we've sung about this morning uh, of old is the same God that is the God that meets with us when we worship Him. The Bible says Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God cannot change. You think about that for a second. If God could change for the worse, he'd cease to be God. If God could change for the better, he wouldn't have been God. You understand? But since he is unchanging, and since he will never change, we know that what he promises back then is still true and applicable in our life today. And if God promises you eternal Life. Listen to me. If God promises you eternal life, you can be sure that God will keep His promises. So let's see if God has promised us eternal life. 
Is that a promise he gives to save folks eternal life? Romans 6.23. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Now there's a promise, isn't it? That sounds like a promise to me. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There it is again. He said it again in John 28, 10, in verse 28, John 10, 28. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them from my hand. Titus chapter 3, verse 7, Paul tells Titus, being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me ask you a question, class. How long is eternity? Somebody said it? Forever. So how long is eternal life? It is forever. Now, there are some people today that say, well, yes, it is forever, but you don't get it until you die. Some people say that. They say you don't start eternal life until you die. And so because they believe that way, they say until you die, there's a chance that you can get unsaved between now and the time you die. And then if you make it to the funeral home and you're still saved, then you get eternal life and you live forever. That's what some people believe. Well, let's just take that to the Word of God. Because really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the Baptists believe, the Methodists believe, Pentecostals believe. What really matters at the end of the day is what does the Word of God say? You understand? So what does the Word of God say? 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Sounds like saved people right there, doesn't it? People that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that ye have. Have. H-A-V-E. If I have something, I'm not waiting on it, right? I'm not waiting to get it. Somebody says, I have a cold. They're not waiting to catch one. They don't got it. Okay? These things I have written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. When you get saved, God gives you. He didn't say you're going to get eternal life. He said you've got eternal life. It is a possession in the heart of every believer. A saved person can literally say today, I will never die. If you have eternal life. Now listen, I did not make the promise, once saved, always saved. I didn't make that promise. God made that promise. God made the promise of eternal security. Now listen to me. If God gives eternal life to you, and John says it is, does in 1 John 5, 13, he says that those that believe on his name have eternal life. They possess it. If you have eternal life and you could lose your salvation, then you didn't have eternal life. Let's say, I got saved May the 5th, 1984. 
Let's say I kept that salvation for 10 years. May the 5th, 1994. And let's say May the 5th, 1994, uh, I just decided I ain't going to live for God anymore. And, uh, and I, I started living the ungodly life. A lot of people say, oh, Brother Chad lost his salvation. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if I lost it ten years into it, it never was eternal life. It was ten-year life. That's all it was. You following me? Jesus says, I give unto you eternal life. Eternal life. God has made a promise. God has made a promise to us, and when God makes his promises, he confirms it with an oath. He puts his own name on the promise. Listen to me today. If you lose your salvation, God loses more than you do. God loses his integrity if you lose your salvation. God has sworn by his own name that he'll do exactly what he says he'll do. And he's keeping you saved today if you've been saved because eternal life is a promise he gives to the believer. When we get saved, we've got God's promise that we're always going to be saved if we genuinely got saved to begin with. And I say hallelujah. Now look with me at verse 18. He recaps the whole idea here. Summarizes it at the beginning of verse 18. He says that by two immutable things, two immutable things, what, what are those immutable things? God's two immutable things. God's promise and God's oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. Now remember, immutable means unchanging. Two things he tells us here will never change. God's promise will never change. God's oath will never change. And then just for a little extra measure, he gives us a little more assurance in that next part of the verse. He says, in which it was impossible for God to lie. Isn't that a blessing? God couldn't lie. If God wanted to lie, because God's holy, incapable of committing sin. And you can always believe what he says when he makes a promise because it's impossible for him to lie. The writer of Hebrews says now in verse 18 that because of the unchanging promise and oath of God, he says we have a strong consolation. That word consolation means encouragement. You can be encouraged today. Beloved, when the old devil makes you feel like because you've done something wrong that God's done with you and God's going to throw you away, you take the devil back to the promises of the God that cannot lie. The same can be encouraged today that God doesn't throw you away just because you make a mistake, just because you commit a sin. God does not throw you away. God keeps you. God keeps you. Getting to heaven is not about your performance in life. Getting to heaven is about Jesus' performance in death. What he did for us at the cross. Paul said in Ephesians 2, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not about you. You're not going to strut through glory and say, I was a good man and I got you. We get this idea down here on earth that at the end of life, God's got this scale and He weighs out the good things and the bad things. And whichever way the scale tips is where you're going. Beloved, I want you to know the scale is eternally tipped against me. It's eternally tipped against you. There is none good. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There's none righteous. No, not 
one. I'm going to heaven because Jesus died and I place my faith and trust in his finished work. I'm going to glory because I've got God's promise on the matter. Not because I'm good enough. I've got God's promise. You get saved today. You can have God's promise on the matter. You can settle the issue of where you're going to spend eternity. Number two, I'm sure because I have God's promise. Number two, I'm sure because I have God's protection. God's protection. But don't you think, let's just think for a second. I hate to think like the devil, but sometimes we do, you know? Don't you think, if you were thinking like the devil, if I could rob you of your salvation and I was the devil, then why have I not already done it? I mean, if I could rob you of your salvation and keep it, keep you from doing as much good as you can do in Jesus' name, why hadn't I already robbed it from you? What keeps the devil from robbing me of my salvation? The reason is I've got God's protection. I'm protected by God. The next part of verse 18 says those who God has made this promise to, it says those who have fled for refuge. You see that word refuge? There's our protection. Refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us. God has given each of His children His divine protection. My soul is secure today, not because I'm keeping myself safe, but because God is keeping me safe. When I ran to Christ, I ran into my refuge. My refuge. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 18, who have fled for refuge. If I could go to hell, then Jesus wasn't much of a refuge. Are you following me? When, when the writer of Hebrews says this, keep in mind he's writing to a bunch of Hebrews, a bunch of Jews. That word refuge, it meant something to them. They understood the word refuge. In fact, over there in Israel, God set up cities in the nation of Israel. There were six of them called the cities of refuge. Three were on each side of the Jordan River. North Middle and south, north, middle, and south, on either side of the Jordan. And that was God's place of refuge. You read about it in Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, Joshua 21, uh, 20 and 21. And those cities in the Old Testament served as a type and shadow uh, of the sanctuary or the shelter that we have in Christ. Cities of refuge were a wonderful, wonderful provision. You see, in the Old Testament, if a man accidentally killed somebody, but the Bible gives the illustration of two guys that are out and they're chopping wood. And the one guy is chopping wood, and as he draws the axe back, the, the head of the axe flies off and hits his neighbor over there. And his neighbor drops dead. Well, it was all an accident. But in the Old Testament, do you remember what justice was in the Old Testament? An eye for an eye. That man's dead, and the man that killed him's got to die. But it was all an accident. So, so what do you do? Well, if it's your family member that got killed, you become the avenger of that family member's blood. It's up to you to make sure that justice gets served. So you take off after that person that killed your relative. But if you're the person that killed that relative, and you know it was an accident... You've got to have somebody to hear your case so this can all get explained. So where do you run? You run to one of those six cities of refuge. 
You're always within a day's journey because they put them strategically to where you could get to. And you ran to the gate of that city when the avenger of blood was pursuing you. You just had to outrun them there. And when you got there, you pledged your cause to the elders of the city. And you could stay in that city, and the avenger of blood could not come in the city. It was guarded. Now, there was a condition that you read about in Numbers chapter 35. You could stay there, as long as you were acquitted, you could stay there as long as the high priest was living. But for some reason, when the high priest died, you had to go. Now listen to me today. This is a glorious picture of our refuge. When you and I run to Christ, we are guilty. The avenger of blood, old death, is after you and me for the wages of sin is death. But once we get into our refuge, we can stay there, watch, until our high priest dies. And beloved, you and I have a high priest that will never, ever die. Isn't that glorious? He, 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 he ever liveth, the Bible says, to make intercession for you and for me. We're protected by our refuge. Verse 18 tells us that our refuge is the hope set before us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm eternally saved today, not because I'm that good, but because Jesus is that good. My salvation is based on Him and Him alone. Hallelujah. In verse 19, this great hope, the believer says, uh, has is likened to an anchor of the soul. An anchor, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. An anchor, you take an anchor and you cast it down into the water, into a place you can't see, and it grabs hold of the rock, and, and your, your boat is, is going to stay on point with that anchor. It may drift a little here, it may drift a little there, but that anchor is always going to pull it back to that one place where it is anchored. Like an anchor is cast into the unseen depths of the sea, my anchor has been cast into the unseen depths of heaven. I didn't cast my anchor down. My anchor has been carried up. It's gone up. He has entered into that within the veil. What is behind the veil? Heaven's holy of holies. It's an Old Testament reference here to the temple and the tabernacle. The anchor of my soul, he says. He's the anchor of my soul. What does that mean? It means my soul is attached to an anchor. Now, the soul, like a boat, may drift a little over here, and it may drift a little bit over here, and it may get shaken and windblown by the storms of this life and get off course from time to time, but it will never get so far to where there's not a point where the anchor won't start pulling it back to the center. Are you following me today? One of these days? You know, God's different than men. When men get ready to move, men pull up the anchor. But Jesus is the anchor. One of these days, he's going to pull up the boat. He's going to say, come up hither. The anchor's not going to move. The boat is coming to where the anchor is. God's going to bring me there. Where am I going? I'm going 
where the anchor is. Where's the anchor? Within the veil. The very presence of God. I'm going to heaven and my attachment to glory is protected because I have an anchor of the soul. Who is my anchor? Verse 20 says, it's my forerunner. The Lord Jesus made a high priest even after the order of Melchizedek. Look at verse 20. Whether the forerunner is for us entered. Now, I've had a spell this week in my office when I saw this. I've read this a dozen or more times. But look in verse 20. Whether my forerunner is for us in it. Jesus Christ, in this verse of Scripture, is called my forerunner. Now, do you remember when Jesus was on this earth? He had a forerunner. You remember who the forerunner of Jesus was? It was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent ahead to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare this world to meet Jesus. If you were expecting Jesus, anytime you saw John, you knew pretty soon the Messiah is going to be revealed. The Messiah is coming. When you see John, John's the reminder that Jesus is coming. But now, everything's changed. Jesus doesn't have a forerunner. He is the forerunner. Well, who's he forerunning for? He's forerunning for you. He's forerunning for me. He is your forerunner. What does a forerunner do? A forerunner goes ahead to prepare the way of the one that's coming. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. Pulling up that rope. Receive you unto myself that where I am, within the veil, there you may be also. You know, I thought about this when, when Jesus uh, came during his earthly ministry. When people saw uh, John the Baptist, they knew Jesus was coming. Because John was the forerunner. But beloved, when heaven looks at Jesus, <laughs> do you know who heaven's looking for now? Do you know because Jesus is the forerunner well glory? When, when heaven sees Jesus, heaven knows I'm coming. Heaven knows you're coming. What is heaven waiting for? When John was preaching on the earth, the earth was waiting for Jesus. When my forerunner went to glory, heaven's waiting for me. Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place. Do you think Jesus would waste all his time building me a mansion that I've never used? He knows that you and I will occupy that mansion because He promised us eternal life. It began the day you got saved. First John 5, 13 doesn't say you're going to get it. It says you have it if you've been saved. And I'm telling you, if you will genuinely give your life to Christ today, if you've never been saved, He will give you eternal life. Thank you for joining us today. Pointing the Way is a ministry of Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. If you would like to contact the ministry, you may write Pointing the Way, 120 Northside Church Road, Dallas, Georgia, 30132. Or visit us on the web at www.northsidedallas.com. Until next time, open God's Word 
to point the way for direction in your life.